Today we're going to be talking about um, how about turning the world upside down. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 17. Um, We're going to be looking at when Paul and Silas entered Thessalonica and they spent time in the Jewish synagogues using the scriptures to explain and to prove that Jesus had to suffer to rise from the dead to prove that he was the Messiah. So that's the whole foundation of what he's going to be talking about. But before we get into that, um, I want to mention that I don't know if any of you are like me at all, but I really want people to know God like I do, but preferably without the conviction to prove it to people. That's at least where I stand. So I guess I ask myself, why don't I feel this urgency or this need to prove to people this important life-changing truth of who Jesus is and what he did for me and the kind of life he calls me to. You know, why? I guess I ask that question, why don't I feel this urgency as Paul does? So there's a verse, um, if you pull up John 17, 3, it says, this is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent sort of this driving force in the mission we have. Um, this was a foundational verse in our, in our Christian camp, so I, I, I thought it was kind of appropriate. But um, back to uh, where we're talking in verse 2 um, in Acts 17, where Paul is. It reads, As was his custom, Paul went in the synagogue, and on the three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started to riot in the city. So the first thing we notice in the beginning of passages that, you know, once Paul was invo- arrived in Thessalonica, the, the first thing they did was they hit the synagogues. That was their first priority. So at the synagogue, Paul knew that he would find people who were worshipers of God. That was his priority. He knew that these were people who knew the scriptures. So he knew what he was looking for. They would have a foundation of truth in which he could build upon. So he could take his testimony and fill in the blanks for what they knew. Um, We knew Paul had amazing testimony. And for those of you who don't know Paul's testimony, we can look at it in Acts chapter 9, if you can pull that up. It's an amazing testimony. Um, It says in Acts chapter 9, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. 
As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, who you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go in the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So he led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called to him in a vision. And Ananias answered, Yes, Lord. And the Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on State Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he had seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him and restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. He's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. So here's a guy persecuting Christians. He's on one end of the spectrum, and Jesus strikes him blind, and then he hears from God, he asks him outright, why are you persecuting me? And when Saul realizes it's Jesus talking to him, I mean, it changes his life. The guy's life is turned around 180 degrees. I mean, this is an ideal testimony that is unparalleled by anything. Paul, he knew the seriousness of his sin. And this created in him such a such a burden for the lost because he knew where he came from. In fact, he wrote in Romans uh, 9, verse 2 and 3, he said, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed off and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people and those of my own race. And I think... I mean, I've actually, that verse came to me a few weeks ago. I've actually been praying that verse personally because, you know, I don't have that kind of love for people. That's a Christ-like love. That's a life that comes from a supernatural change that happens when Christ comes in your life. That's nothing that you can have naturally. But you know what? God wants that love for us. And he... he for each of us. It isn't just for a select few. He really does. Um, so Paul, having that kind of sacrificial love for the lost, he knew where to find these people waiting for the promised Messiah that we're looking at in this verse. Um, they're in the synagogues. They were the ones praying every day that, that God would send the Messiah to Israel. So Paul's job was to show them that Jesus was, in fact, 
the one that God had promised to send. So it was three Sabbaths that Paul went to the synagogue in Thessalonica and he spoke. So he took the scriptures and then he used them as a foundation of what to teach. It was really hard for them to accept this. They had to accept that their Messiah was going to die. So the key for the argument was it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And that this Jesus is whom I proclaim for you, that it's Christ. That was his foundation. <clears throat> so his teaching was on the fact that the Messiah had to die to accomplish everything he was sent to do. And that if the Messiah did not die, then he could not be the Messiah, just the opposite of what they were taught. So he had to t- tell these people who had believed something all their lives that what they were taught was wrong and give them something else to believe, convincing them more importantly, would require the Holy Spirit to change something that they were, it was deeply rooted in them. I mean, that was a very hard thing to try to teach somebody. So Romans 8, 6 says, the mind of a sinful man is death. But the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The Spirit's the only way we can be open to change. And the Spirit's the only way that these people were able to be convinced and changed from what they had been taught over so much time. We need to be open to what God has and the people that he brings in our path because we don't know what, is, what the Spirit's been doing in people's lives, who he brings before us. We may think we know, but we don't. So I ask myself, you know, has my repentance before God prompted me to try to explain and prove what God's done for me? Is the fact that, you know, my sin, do I think it's so evil? Does it offend God so terribly that it took the, sinful, the sinless Savior, Jesus, the Messiah, to atone for it? Do I actually feel that way? Does it bring me to my knees daily, the realization of how much of a consequence there is for my sin? Do I, do, you know, do I realize that, the impact of that? God is beginning to do that in my life. Um, we're quick to explain and prove, and I know I am, when I'm violated, I'll invest in, you know, I'll definitely be quick to, <laughs> to prove something. Or when someone we love is violated, I'll definitely be, I'll be quick to explain that. You know, this scenario, you picture if there's a child in our community, you know, who's been victimized by something horrible. You might have proof of a crime or something. I, th- I think we all agree that there's an urgency to go and explain and prove you know, it would all prompt us to take action, to do something. We'd act right away. But, you know, I say, God, you know, do I have that same conviction? When I see people around me that you've brought in my path, you know, do they, I know they're offending you, I know that they're lost, I know that they're self-destructive people. Do I care enough about them, God? These are things I need to bring before God and pray. 
So I see like there's three main reasons generally people don't really share their testimony. Number one is fear. Obviously, we, you know, we're, fear's a big one, but, and number two, I just said on before, is that we don't have that sacrificial love, you know, that Christ hasn't shown us that Christ-like love for people. And number three is kind of one I want to share my own personal reason, but it's, we may not have a personal testimony of Christ's active working in our life. That's a big one. And I'm going to share a little more on that. Um, you know, I, I was introduced to Christ back in 1985. It's like 30 years ago. I, um, in my personal life, I only led one person to Christ. It was my roommate in college. Now, I, I was a, in a Christian camp setting. I had led kids to Christ in a formal setting. But in my own personal life, I only led one person to Christ. Um, when my kids were younger, you know, I... They had accepted Jesus, and I'd love to say it was because I had this great testimony of faith and did all these amazing things for God, stepped out in faith, and, but no, not even close. You know, it wasn't anything about being Christ-like. They were young, and they didn't know any better. No, I'm just kidding. They, they knew. <laughs> no, but they had, they had a childlike faith. They really did. And they were open to truth, and they knew their parents loved them, so they had a good foundation. But the world's different. The world they live in relies on the power of the Holy Spirit working against everything the enemy's up against. And the Spirit of God has to open people's hearts. It's a different, different animal. But I never intentionally pursued and went out of my way for Christ, for anyone, intentionally. And I probably only shared my testimony with a handful of people up until about 2012. So 30 years ago, when I accepted Christ, I truly believe when I accepted Christ in my life, I, that he was a part of my life that was going to make and give me more of a satisfying life, I guess is a way to say it. But I, gotta, I guess i got to point out a major flaw in that thinking. Um, it's backwards and one of the crazy things in that is that as a teenager when I accepted Christ, going through my 20s, having kids, with all the changes and everything God was doing, it took me until about three years ago to realize that he wanted me to realize that you know, my life truly belonged to him. It really wasn't my life and trying to fit him in. And I really kind of thought that I could fit him, this big God that's bigger than I actually see him, into my life. John 10.10 is a good verse, if you can pull that up. It says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. I didn't understand what it meant to have full life. A full life is a surrendered life a life given to God that truly belongs to him. Um, I was miserable because I didn't really have a life. God showed me one summer, it was just a very memorable summer day, that that my life really needed to belong to him. It had to be his. Um, I had spent 27 years as kind of a juggling act. In one hand, I was trying to balance what God wanted me to do, to make him happy, and then on the other hand, try to 
balance my agenda of what I was trying to accomplish. But I spent little time trying to really get to know God and who he is and what he desired for me. So I became a very angry and discontented person. And I'll tell you, there's nothing worse than knowing the truth of Jesus and not knowing how to hear from him and not knowing how to experience him and not knowing how to make him feel real. It's worse than never knowing God at all. It's, it's a horrible place to be in. And it's from not fully surrendering to God. So I never, you know, I never surrendered my life fully to God because I never really be- believed it fully be- belonged to him. Um, it's pretty sad, but I, I had no idea how to let go to God completely. And God wasn't going to speak and act deliberately in my life until I was ready to deliberately surrender to him. So I couldn't testify to being free from bondage because I hadn't surrendered my will to God. I just liked the idea of God in my life. So without God working my life, there wasn't any testimony. There wasn't anything to share. So that's what I was getting to the point about the testimony. I'll never forget, I was with my, a good friend of mine who's Jewish. We're cutting wood. He started sharing how God wasn't real in his life. And this was only a, probably a month or two prior to this life-changing day. So instead of, if this had happened today, where I would be excitedly sharing, like, oh, if only God could, you know, uh, reveal himself to you and just kind of excited how, you know, God is real, I could only respond something really dumb that I know didn't give God the glory in a way that, and it's funny because I remember how horrible I felt about how my inability to testify in the moment that I actually remember that more than I actually remember what I said. But I'm sure it was dumb because it really stood out that I had no way to testify. But that, that day, I think, was an, a tremendous act of love and grace from God because it actually made me more angry and more guilty, but it helped lead me and prompt me and God used me to surrender more. And where I just, it drew me more to wanting to hear from him. But anyways, I felt that was important to share. I want to get back to Paul. Let's picture again what Paul, on the road there, he's blind. He's asking Jesus who's talking to him. And it's Jesus. Now, I don't think Paul had an issue with his testimony. I mean, he had, it's pretty black and white. I don't think there's any gray area here. I don't think in the issue of loving people there's an issue because I think he experienced the grace of God in a way many of us question. I don't think he questioned because, like I said, he was a life, someone who's turned 180. I think that he experienced the amazing grace and love of God that many of us have not. But that's what the Christian walk is about. It's about change. It's about experiencing Jesus and understanding whether we feel it or not that we are a changed life. So I guess the question is, has meeting Jesus changed you? And meeting Jesus has changed me. And I guess the question, you guys, is has it changed you? Are you really hungry for change in your life? And this is talking to anyone who's seeking God. If you're just seeking God in your life, or if you feel you've surrendered your life to God, Or maybe you just want to surrender your life to God, but you're not sure how to do that. Maybe there's strongholds in your life that keep you from surrendering. 
But let's go back to chapter 17. I'll come back to this point. We're talking about these in verse 5 about the jealous group of Jews. It says in verse 5, they rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials shouting, these men who caused trouble all over the world, they come here and Jason's welcomed them in the house. Now the charges brought against Paul and his group really should have been charges actually against this group because they were actually the ones disturbing the peace. And this is actually similar to what happened with Jesus in Luke chapter 23, if you want to bring that up. Um, In Luke 23, they said, you know, when they began to accuse Jesus, saying, we found this man subverting our nation, and he opposed the payment of taxes to Caesar, and he claims to be Messiah and king. So it's the same situation where the, the movement of Jesus' followers, it was never about political ambition or wanting to overthrow Caesar. But, um, you know, if you want to jump down, actually, we're going to skip, Sam, to Acts, the verse 7. We're going to go to, we're going to read about um, where it says, they're all defying Caesar's decrees. It says that they were all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there's another king, one called Jesus. And when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. Now, obviously, it's hard to share Jesus when things are uncomfortable, but, you know, in this situation when there's outright resistance, you know, do you think God plans us to just be strong and bold? No. I mean, this, this takes not only using Scripture, but it takes trusting in the Holy Spirit to rely on people, the Holy Spirit, to just soften people's hearts, to repent. Paul trusted God. We need to trust God, too, in these circumstances. So I guess the question I wanted to wrap up with is, has, Jesus, has meeting Jesus changed you? And in your average day-to-day interaction and in your encounters, do you think taking your testimony in the truth of how God has showed up in your life, combined with the scripture, do you think you can make a case to most people that you come in contact with day to day? A case of why people need God. So I just want to make a couple challenges as we close. For the person who feels they don't have a true testimony, but they feel they've given their life to God, you know, ask God to speak to you. Why, you know, why don't I see evidence of you speaking to me? What area of my life am I holding back from you? You know, that's the question you want to ask God. Maybe for the person just, just seeking God, challenge, ask God this week, show up. You know, God, I need you to reveal my, yourself to me. These challenges are so important because God wants a relationship. He wants communication. He doesn't care about us following a bunch of rules. He wants you. And I also have a challenge for those who feel they don't love people in a Christ-like way. And I, I don't. I confess it. God's growing that in me, and I try to bring it before God almost every day. You know, bring that to God and ask God. He can give you that Christ-like love. And for those who experience fear, fear is a bondage. You know, Jesus gave us the authority in Scripture to cast out fear. 
Jesus gave that to us. You can name a Jesus. We can say fear has no place here, you know, and that's ask God for that faith. Say, I don't have faith to say that, but God can give us the faith. You know, God wants to stretch us, and he wants us to rely on him for that. And so the last challenge is this week, you know, I, the last challenge is just bring an opportunity to share your testimony, what God's doing in your life, with someone, whoever it is. Pray that God open a person's heart and ask God to open your mouth, guided by the Holy Spirit. Um, I put the same challenge on myself, not just this week, but from here on. We need God's help in this area big time. So I'm just going to ask Josh to come up and play for a little bit. I'm going to have, I'm going to have, I'm going to be in the back actually with a couple people. Um, and we're just going to worship for a few minutes, maybe 10, 15 minutes, do some worship songs and just spend this time praying, you know, with these questions. If anybody wants prayer, you can come in back. I'm happy to pray with you or Robin will be back there. Anyone wants prayer, you're welcome to come back. Um, and then after maybe 10 minutes, 12 minutes or whatever, um, they'll, they'll close with a couple songs.